Father, thank you so much for uh, even difficult passages like this, even ones that, that really challenge us, um, challenge our worldview, challenge uh, just the way we think about life. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would really guide us as we look at it today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I can get my Lord of the Rings nerd on for just one second. I wish I had my glasses on today. I could push them up. Um, there is something sort of strange about the whole story. And forget the fact that if at the end Gandalf, I'm sorry I'm ruining for you, but you should have seen it by now. Uh, if at the end Gandalf can call a giant eagle to like pick them up and take them to safety, why doesn't he just do that at the beginning? Why do we need three books and the Cimmerillion and, you know, all of this? So you can think about that later. Um, but that's not actually what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is uh, the very end of the story. And again, I'm sorry if I'm ruining it for you, but um, you have this insignificant little creature, a hobbit. Uh, this little, tiny, insignificant creature who would only stand maybe about three feet tall. Um, he is standing... Uh, in the middle of a volcano holding nothing more than a small golden ring. Um, here's the moment. Um, and this moment on its own with no context, if you knew nothing about it, uh, it would seem kind of insignificant. Like, what does this three-foot-tall hobbit with a ring have to do with saving the world? Or just for a minute, let's bring it back to our own world. What about a man standing on the steps of a monument in Washington, D.C. is significant? Or what about a bunch of men running on a beach? What's significant about those things? These things happen every day. But if you put those two things into context, all of a sudden you've got Martin Luther King Jr. or you've got the Allied forces running onto a beach. All of a sudden, those moments take on real significance because they change the entire world. And in the same way, Frodo standing on the edge of a volcano, dropping a golden ring into the lava, has significance far greater than just a man out for a hike. And because as he's standing on the edge of the volcano, there are two armies amassing, preparing for battle. One is the big, mighty, scary army, you know, hundreds of thousands of these terrifying creatures as troops coming to, to wage war. And the other is a ragtag, small and weak band of normal, ordinary people and creatures. But if you know the story, the ring is the one ring of power. And as the story progresses, the evil lord of Middle-earth, he's been growing in power and his army has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it just comes to this climactic moment but if Frodo just drops the little ring, if he just drops that little ring into the volcano, he loses all of his power and Middle-earth is safe forever. That's how the story goes. And what this passage that we're looking at today shows us um, is something quite similar. You have this great power that is amassing. And you have, you know, the armies from all over the earth coming. And this climax, and what's going to happen? Well, again, the other thing this passage shows us today is that actually there was a moment in history. The cross of Jesus Christ is actually also one of those moments. One of those moments that if you just, if you're only zoomed in on it, you would think, okay, yeah, in the ancient world, the Romans crucified a lot of people. So what's the big deal about this one person? 
just another routine Roman execution. But if you zoom out, if you give it its full context, then that moment, the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection from the dead, is the most significant moment in all of history. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So I'm going to try and get our heads around this passage. And remember, our goal with this whole series is to look at the main sweeping themes of the book of Revelation. So we're not going to get into too much of the nitty-gritty detail, but here's what we've been seeing. Uh, The book breaks down like this. There's... um, Uh, Three parts. There's one set of seven, which are seven letters to seven real churches. And then in the middle, there's four sets of seven, which are four descriptions of the spiritual battle that we're facing today in the world that we live in. Uh, And then there's the final, the end, when Jesus returns and puts everything right again, where there's a final judgment, which we looked at last week. Uh, Sorry, yeah, final judgment, a final victory, and a final city. And remember what we're doing as we look at Revelation is we're getting this peek into the unseen spiritual world. And so as we read it, it kind of looks strange. It looks different uh, because we're actually looking at it from heaven's perspective. And when you come to the last part of the book, the end, which is what we're doing today, uh, the very last part actually works like one of those four sets of seven in the middle. Um, It actually kind of retells the story of the time that we're living in from a different perspective. Now, okay, that's all kind of, I don't know, ethereal and not that, it just seems kind of strange to talk about these things. What does any of that, how does that matter to any of us in Los Angeles in 2021? And why take the time to look at this strange book that has these weird images? Well, it's because despite being about 2,000 years removed from when this book was written, it's actually talking about the times we're living in today. But this book is actually God's message to Christians who are on the margins of society. It's God's message to Christians who feel too weak to make any difference in the world. They look at the world and they're like, well, what can I do? What could we do? It's a message to Christians who feel their beliefs and worldviews seem foolish and inconsequential in the place where they live. And if that doesn't sound like 21st century Los Angeles, I don't know what does. And it's not actually written as a command to to remove yourself from the world. It's not like, hey, things are going to get bad, so run to the hills. That's not actually what it says. No, no, it's written as a command to endure, as a command to overcome. Because what we see as we get into these last few chapters, chapter 19, 20, 21, 22, is that Jesus has overcome that he will return and put everything right in the world. So this is written to give hope to the weak, to the marginalized, in order that they'll endure. And so it's very much written to us. And so chapter 19 that we looked at last week, it ends at the very end of history with Jesus returning to earth in all of his glory and defeating evil and sin. And so, you know, you could actually kind of stop at the end of chapter 19, but that's not what Revelation does. Uh, In chapter 20, we're actually picked up and we're whisked all the way back into the beginning of the time that we're living in now. So it actually takes us all the way back to the cross of Jesus Christ, to the moment that he died on the cross. In other words, the beginning of the age that we're living now. And so chapter 20 describes the same time period as all the four sets of sevens that we've already looked at. In other words, the time we're living in now, but now we get it again from a different angle. And if we look at it from this angle we'll see there are three things that give us hope to endure. Three things that say, hey, those of you who feel marginalized, those of you who feel like you're on the fringes of society, those of you who feel like you've been cast aside because of your beliefs in Jesus Christ, 
Here's some hope to endure. Or to put it another way, three things that often make us think that we can't endure. Um, Here's three things that make us think we can't endure. We think that Satan is more free than he really is. Secondly, we think that death is more final than it really is. Or thirdly, we think judgment is more lenient than it really is. Those are three things that we see in this passage. So first, we think that Satan is more free than he really is. Uh, A number of years ago, I went as a chaperone to a high school French classes trip to Paris. Um, I don't know if I would ever sign up to do that again. It really was not that fun, uh, except when they were in their class. And then me and another two other friends that went to chaperones, we could actually go and wander around Paris uh, and drink coffee and eat baguettes and things like that, wear our striped shirts and berets. And um, one of the things we did on that tour is we, we did a tour of Notre Dame Cathedral, but it wasn't just any tour. The tour that we went on was led by the person who, uh, before the job that he had at that moment, his job was the key holder to Notre Dame Cathedral. And about two or three months before he gave us this tour, he got promoted, and he was in charge of all of sacred art for the Roman Catholic Church in all of France. That was his job. Uh, And so this was a man with the keys to Notre Dame. And he gives us this great tour of the facade on the outside, and then he takes us in, and, you know, there's the the side of the, there's two towers, and there's a side that the tourists all go up, and then there's the other side, if you've ever seen the the Disney movie, I think it's a Disney movie, it's the side that Quasimodo lives in. (laughs) So we got to go up that side, he's not there, by the way, we got to go up that side, and then he takes us into the organ loft. And actually, I sat at the organ in Notre Dame Cathedral, and it was all everything I could do in my power to not just start playing something, even though I don't know how to play. And then he says, okay, come with me. And he takes us through, back into the tower, takes us through another door, and now we're walking on this like balcony that goes around. And there is just painting upon painting upon painting upon painting just stored up there. And then he goes, okay, come this way. And there's a little door, and he opens this little door, and he takes us out, and we're now walking on the roof of Notre Dame Cathedral. To do the whole thing. That's what happens when you get to go with the key holder. The person who has the keys. You get access to everything. The one who has the authority to unlock the doors and to lock them again. And look back with me here at verse 1. Because who do we meet? We meet a key holder. Chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding it holding in his hand a great chain. And then notice what he does with the keys. Verse 2, he seized the dragon, that ancient snake who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him in the abyss, where he has the key, and locked and sealed it over him. And so in this incredible vision, an angel, just like all the other angels we've met in Revelation so far, actually captures Satan and locks him up for a thousand years. In other words, a vastness of time, a really long time. But this event, it leaves us with a question. Where did the angel get the keys? How does the angel have the keys? Where where does the power come from? Well, flip back if you have a Bible open to chapter 1 of Revelation. And look at verse 17. In chapter 1, John, who's writing this book, he meets, remember this, he meets the, the resurrected and glorified Jesus Christ. And look what he says, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, 
Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive again forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And so where do the keys come from? They come from Jesus Christ himself, who is the first and the last, who is the living one. Jesus Christ, who is dead, but is now alive again forever and ever. He is the one who holds the keys of death and Hades, and he is the one who gives them to this angel. And so this angel has authority that comes straight from Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind our timeline here. This event, the, what's called the binding of Satan, it actually happens right at the beginning of the age that we're living in now. Because remember, chapter 20, we've gone right back to the point where Jesus Christ is on the cross. And so it happens right at the beginning of the age that we're living in now. And so this means that the cross itself, that moment that without context is just a, another sort of insignificant routine Roman execution, is actually the event. Jesus Christ's death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, is actually the event that causes the binding of Satan. And so when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he not only paid the penalty for sins, but he actually disarmed his spiritual enemy, Satan. That's what Colossians chapter 2 tells us. I've just put it on the screen here for you. It says, He forgave us all our sins, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so the cross is the moment that Satan is disarmed and defeated and the angel comes with the keys and the chain to lock him up. Well, that still begs the question because it seems like we've, we've been reading in some of these other chapters like he's still active today. There's still things going on. So what is happening there? Well, notice it's a very specific disarming. Look back to Revelation chapter 20, verse 3. It says, He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him. And then notice this, to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. And so it's a very specific disarming. And so from the cross of Jesus Christ, his cross, burial, and resurrection, until the very end of the age that we're living in, Satan is bound specifically from deceiving the nations. Notice he's not, he's not bound from his other actions, just from deceiving the nations. And that means that the other New Testament passages that describe what he's still able to do uh, still stand. And so, you know, in 1 Peter 5, he's still able to prowl about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In 2 Corinthians 2, he's still able to disrupt church unity. In 2 Corinthians 4, he's able to blind the unbelieving. In 2 Corinthians 11, he's still able to disguise himself as an angel of light. In Ephesians 6, he can hurl flaming arrows at Christians. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he can thwart church planting and missions around the world. And as we've seen over the past few weeks, his three allies, the two beasts and Babylon, remember them, they're still running, freely attempting to deceive and turn people away from Christ. But there's one thing he's not able to do. The one thing that he is bound from doing is he, he cannot stop Christians from proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. He can't stop it. He can't stop it. He's been chained from it, locked up into the abyss. And so he might win the occasional battle, but the war belongs to Christ. 
And those battles are fought every day in our homes, in our offices, on campuses, in refugee camps, in closed nations around the world where it's illegal to share the gospel. In some cases, the gospel is spreading faster in places where it's illegal. Because Satan is bound, he cannot stop that from happening. And so we shouldn't fear him. He's not as free as we think he is. He's been bound up, chained, locked in the abyss, and so the gospel is able to go free. And so is it difficult to endure? Yeah, it is. Do we have a formidable enemy? Yes, we do. Might you lose your reputation for being a Christian and speaking about Jesus? Yeah, you might. Could you even lose your job? I don't maybe. Is it possible you could even lose your life? Well, yeah, that still happens today. But what this text shows us is it's worth it to endure. It's worth it to remain faithful to the end, to Christ. Because secondly, here's our second point. We actually think death is more final than it really is. We tend to to think that death is more final than it really is. Um, Probably some of the most famous missionaries to ever uh, be sent out, Christian missionaries to ever be sent out, was Jim Elliott and a few of his colleagues and friends. And uh, they went to Quito, well, not Quito, but to Ecuador. Um, And they were trying to reach this uh, very secluded uh, nation called the Aucas. And these missionaries were flown in uh, one by one uh, in this small plane and dropped off on the beach uh, where the Aka live. Um, and uh, one of the pilots flew over their village and was trying to like, say, hey, come on, come to the beach. There's some, some people there we want you to meet. And after a few days, an Aka man and two women, they appeared. Uh, it's not easy for them to understand each other since the missionaries only knew a few Aka phrases. And so what they do, they shared a meal with them. They shared some food. Um, and the pilot actually took the man up in, a, in his plane and flew him around. That must have like blown his mind. Uh, and the missionaries, they tried to show sincere friendship. And they, they said, hey, when we come back, would you bring more from the village next time? And so then for the next two days, the missionaries waited there on the beach for the Aucas to return. And finally, on day six, two Aucas women come uh, walking out of the jungle. And Jim Elliott and another um, one of the missionaries excitedly jumped into the river and began to wade over to them because they thought, we've, we've become friends. We've shared meals together. And as they got closer, the women didn't appear friendly. Instead, uh, Jim Elliott and uh, this other missionary, they almost immediately heard a terrifying cry behind them. And as they turned, they saw a group of Aka warriors with their spears raised, ready to throw. And Jim Elliott, he actually has got a gun, not for protection against people, but from jungle creatures. And he sees them coming and he has to make a decision. Well, what do I do? Do I pull the gun or not? But they had made a decision that they would never use it. They promised they wouldn't kill an Aka who didn't know Jesus in order to save themselves from being killed. And so within seconds, the Aka warriors threw their spears, killing all the missionaries, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, and Jim Elliott. 
And if you only look at their story from up close, you might say, well, what a waste. These young men, they're in their 20s. What a waste. How is that worth it? But if, like our other stories, you, you back out, you zoom out, and you look at it in the entire context of human history, and zoom out even further and look at it in the context of the seen, both the seen physical world and the unseen spiritual world, you begin to see that it wasn't a waste at all. Because, listen to this, not only did some of the wives of these men eventually make contact with this tribe, but eventually their work uh, meant that the entire tribe came to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. The whole tribe. And look at what Revelation 20 says about these men. These five men who died. I saw thrones on which were seated those, this is verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And then listen to this. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, you need to know that these verses are some of the most hotly debated verses in the entire Bible, maybe the most hotly debated. But I want you to try and grasp what's going on here. Because if we do, it has massive implications for us today. So skipping over all the technical arguments, here's what I think John is seeing in his vision. That when a Christian, someone who has taken the claims of the gospel into their lives in order to receive forgiveness of sins and new lives, when a Christian, when somebody who's done that, when they die they experience what the text calls the first resurrection. Look at the next verse, verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And so for the Christian, when your physical body is killed, your spirit is alive. And this text says that during the thousand years, this vastness of time, the time that we're living in right now, during the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, if you die during that time, what it says is that you reign with Christ for the whole time. And so back to Jim Elliot and his colleagues. They, they, are, they were killed on the beach, but they are reigning with Christ. Right now they are reigning with Christ. And they're in that amazing scene that is happening in the throne room of heaven. Remember this back in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 that says there are four amazing creatures covered with eyes and wings and 24 elders and thousands upon thousands and 10,000 upon 10,000 angels and multitudes upon multitudes praising Jesus Christ saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. They're in that chorus singing those words. They're the ones who in chapter 6 are praying before the altar in heaven. Chapter 6, verse 10, it says, They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. They are with Christ. They have been given white robes to wear. And by the way, it's not just the martyrs who've experienced the first resurrection. Look at chapter 14, 
Verse 13, he says, Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Now, do you see how encouraging this is? Here's what this means. This means that anyone who you know who has died, who is a Christian, is right now reigning with Christ for the vastness of time. Anyone who remained faithful to Christ until the end and passed in this life, whether it was death by execution, by natural causes, by car accident, by cancer, they're reigning with Christ. And that means one day you too, if you're a Christian, will reign with Christ for the vastness of time if you die before he returns. You'll see him as he really is. You'll see his face shining like the sun in all its brilliance and as the lion who is the lamb who was slain. And so have you lost someone? If they endured, if they overcame, if they died as a Christian, this text is telling us that they have received the first resurrection and they are reigning with Christ right now. Here's what else this is telling us. It's, it's saying it's worth it. That the, the martyrs are actually telling us that holding on to your Christian faith, that overcoming in spite of fear, in spite of temptation, in the face of weakness, in spite of everything Satan might throw at us, they're saying hold on and endure because it will be worth it. And not only that, but they're saying it's worth it to speak up about Jesus. Because in those moments when you speak up about Christ, you're actually joining with the martyrs and testifying about Jesus. You're actually joining with Christ in overcoming Satan. This is not an inconsequential moment. So that dinner conversation with a friend where you talk to them about Jesus, that conversation with a family member over the holidays coming up, inviting a friend to church on a Sunday, don't think me irreverent, but it's sort of like Frodo standing on the edge of the volcano with the ring. It's completely central to the defeat of Satan in the life of the person that you're talking to. And so the martyrs are saying to you, it's worth it. They're saying, go and share. They're saying, go and tell the nations. Go and tell your neighbors. Go and tell your sister. Go and tell your colleagues. Go and tell your old friend from childhood that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Go and tell them that Jesus Christ is the living one. He was dead, but he is alive again forever and ever. The martyrs are saying it's worth it. And we need to tell them because of what happens last in our text. This is the third point. We, we tend to think that judgment is more lenient than it really is. And this is where the passage gets really hard. This is where it gets really tough to swallow. At the end of this 1,000 years, in other words, the vastness of time, it says that Satan is released from his prison, and so he deceives the nations. And out of his deception of the nations, he amasses a giant army. An army as vast on the, as the sand on the seashore. And verse 9, it says, They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city that he loves. 
And this seems, as you're reading this, it sounds so impressive. And you think about the amount of effort and work and time it must have taken to, to amass this army made up of people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And they're marching across the breadth of the earth. They're surrounding the city of God. And it seems so significant and so momentous and so earth-shattering. Surely not one person could ever stand up to this army. No army could come up against them. But I love this. I love how swift and anticlimactic this is. Satan deceives the entire world, amasses a huge army, and surrounds the city of God to destroy it. And then take a look at the second half of verse 9. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. It's that quick. We saw it last week, remember? That he defeated them with a sword from his mouth. In other words, with a word. One word. The fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And then verse 10 tells us that the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire where he will be tormented along with all his, his allies forever and ever. And this is the same battle described in chapter 19 last week and chapter 16 a few weeks ago. It's called the Battle of Armageddon, and it's meant to show us the same thing, that in the end, evil comes crashing down and is defeated with a word from the mouth of Jesus. And so listen, this is, here's what this is showing us. It's saying the, the judgment that Jesus brings isn't lenient. It's final, it's complete. And here's where it's even more difficult for us to swallow because it's not just for Satan and his, his cronies, but it's for all who have turned away from him. Every single person who's turned away from him. Look at verse 11. Because humanity will also have to stand before God. After he sees Satan thrown in, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And so here again, we meet God on his throne, and the image here is of complete and utter holiness. Every time we see him on his throne anywhere in the Bible, it's, it's talking about his holiness. No one can stand before him. He is so pure, so perfect, so spotless, so righteous, so holy. Not even the earth or the heavens can remain in his presence. It says they run away from him. And so how could a sinful human ever stand a chance? But look what happens, verse 12. God has summoned everyone great and small to stand before the throne. Everyone who has ever lived is summoned to stand before God's great white throne. And the books are open. And verse 12 says, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And verse 13 tells us the same thing, that the sea will give up its dead and they too will be judged according to what they have done. Everyone great and small, buried in the ground, buried at sea, or ashes tossed into the wind, will one day stand before God, and the books will be opened, and everything we've ever done will be read out. Everything we've said, the deeds that we're ashamed of, that we've kept hidden for years and years, the things that no one else knows, they're in the books, they're written down. 
Every compromise, every time we've lied to our parents and our spouses, every website we've served to, every strange bed that we've slept in, every angry, bitter word we've uttered or thought, it's all written down in the books. And if the earth and the heavens can't stand in God's presence, then neither can we. And so can you imagine this moment? This is where, this is so tough to swallow. Can you imagine this moment? Standing in the courtroom. When it's your turn. When your name is called out. It's a terrifying moment because look at what this text says happens to those who have lived in disobedience to God while on this earth. They receive verse 14, the second death. And verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. For those who are disobedient to God, who've turned their backs on him in this life, it says they receive the same eternal torment that Satan and all of his allies receive. They're thrown into the lake of fire. And this is why this is a really hard passage. But there is a glimmer of hope here. It's not all doom and gloom. Because there's another book. Did you notice it? There's a second book. Look at verse 12 again. It says, another book was opened, which is the book of life. And if your name is written in this book, you're spared the judgment. If you're a Christian, not just one in name, but someone who really understands stood the claims of Christianity and asked Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then your name is also written in the book of life, in this other book. And if your name is there, that's the end of judgment. Your name is blotted out from the other book. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Your sins are not read out. You don't stand in the courtroom and everything is read out. You're safe because you trust in Jesus Christ who took responsibility on the cross for every single wrong thing that you said, done, or thought. Anything that was written in that book of judgment, he paid for it with his death. And so for the Christian, there's nothing to fear of in this moment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And so where is your name? Where is your name? Do you want to be spared the judgment? Do you want to reign with Christ? Do you want to be given the white robe that shows your sins have been paid for and forgiven by Jesus Christ? Then turn to him today. Call on him and say, if you're going to one day sort out all the evil and sin in the world, please God, would you do it in my life today? Whoever you are, Whatever your relationship to God and to Christ has been before today, whether you come from a long history of Christians in your family or none at all, whoever you are, the way to become a Christian is simply to pray, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Please forgive me of my sins and come into my life and make me new again. And when a person genuinely from their heart prays that prayer, when you allow Jesus to come into your life that way, your whole record in the book of judgment is blotted out in that moment. And your name is written 
in the book of life. That's why it's worth it. That's the whole reason it's worth it. That's why you can endure. That's why you can endure. It's why it's worth it to hold on to your faith in Jesus. That's why it's worth it to have that conversation with your family over Christmas. Why it's worth it to invite a friend on a Sunday or to a Christmas event. Why it's worth it to speak up for him at work, even if you might lose everything for it. Even if you were to lose your life. Because those who die in Christ are not dead. They receive the first resurrection and will reign with him for a vastness of time. And it's worth it because because of what we're going to read about next week. That one day we will finally find ourselves in a physical world where there is no more mourning or crying or pain. It's the world that we're all longing for. It's the world that we can only dream of. That's why it's worth it. But until then, let's pray. Our Father, we long for this other world. Will there be no more mourning or crying or pain or death? Will the old order of things have passed away and the new has come? Where you've made everything new. Lord, we long for that day. But Lord, in the meantime, help us. Help us to see that it's worth it to endure. Help us to see that it's worth it to overcome. Fill us with the hope that we need in order to overcome. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.